This is a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information, please visit digitalpreservation.gov. I'm Mike Ashenfelder. My guest today is Linda Tottich, Executive Director of the Audiovisual Archive Network. She's also an adjunct professor at New York University's Moving Image Archiving and Preservation Program. Well, Linda Tottich, thank you very much for talking with us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Tell me a, a little about your background, first of all, Linda. Uh, well, I've been working in the archival moving image field, boy, since the mid-1980s, I would say, starting out when I was what I would call a baby archivist at the UCLA Film and Television Archive as an assistant cataloger. I have a degree in library science from UC Berkeley, but primarily how I actually got into this field was because of my early educational experience at California Institute of the Arts, where I started out as a BFA student in the music school and in, in the art school, and had a job in the library there cataloging in MARC format as they were doing retrospective conversion of their catalogs. So my background really is in cataloging, but also as a creator of films and also being involved in music. And that just kind of carried me along the route of starting into the archival field as a professional where after I received my library of science degree, I was working at Pacific Film Archive up at UC Berkeley, again as a cataloger, but then moved on to the University of Georgia, where I was director of the Media Archives and Peabody Awards collection, which is a fabulous collection of broadcasting from all over the country, local broadcasting as well as national broadcasting and uh, then international. And in a way, my career followed the um, archival field going from analog to digital, because by the time I was at Georgia, and that was in 1995 to 2000, then we started thinking about digitizing video and audio for preservation. That's when people were first starting to think about it, especially as audio tape and uh, increasingly videotape was no longer being manufactured. So continuing on from Georgia, I then worked at the Getty Research Institute, where I was coordinator of digital projects there, and then at HBO, where I was manager of the digital library there. So basically, from about 2000 onward, all of my positions have been digitally oriented, following just basically how the field has just grown through technology. After HBO, I was director of operations at Art Store, which is a digital library of art, primarily art images and cultural objects that was funded by the Mellon Foundation. And after leaving ArtStore, I decided to start a service called the Audiovisual Archive Network, returning back to my archival moving image and audio roots in a way to help archives that have primary source sound, film, video collections to provide access to them online and to also do digital preservation of their content, of this important historical content. I do want to ask you in a moment about consumer level archiving, about how people can save their own personal videos. But before we get to that, your background is so broad and so up-to-date. Up-to-date meaning you're following the trends in digital preservation. Uh, what kind of issues do you see particularly associated with video? Preserving different digital things, there are some common problems, but is there anything that's unique to video? Yes, and what is facing everybody from broadcasters to consumers, they are all facing the exact same problem, which is perhaps they have analog video in their collections, in their legacy collections. Well, analog videotape is now obsolete, essentially. I mean, Umatics, three-quarter inch Umatics are obsolete. Beta SP is no longer being manufactured. VHS is still on the market, but really it's out the door. 
as, as a consumer grade format. So everybody must digitize. They absolutely have no choice. It's digitization imperative for analog video content, whether you have your own home movies on VHS or, again, you're a national news broadcaster. People must digitize the videotape, but then what they wind up with are those digital files that have been transferred from the videotape. And that's what I call basically is like reborn digital files because the videotape itself has a very short life expectancy, not to mention it's obsolete. So then people must be faced with, okay, then how do we preserve these digital files that have been created? And the digital files that have been created, they themselves can become obsolete, not to mention then perhaps the storage media that they're stored on then can deteriorate or has a short life expectancy. So it's a constant, constant cycle of having to manage this content. You use an interesting term, I think, time-based content. Mm -hmm. Instead of moving image, is that is that the same thing? Uh, well, I use time-based content because that would involve um, audio as well as film and video. Okay. You know, basically it's something that in order to um, experience the content, you have to usually just sit there and experience it in time as it runs, as it plays out. Versus static content, which is like a letter, you know, a document that you can just sit there and read. So the common problems then that uh, consumer level stuff and professional broadcast, let's say broadcast level content would have is, uh, well, the preservation part, right? The, the, the formats become obsolete. Mm -hmm. The media on which it's saved has to be refreshed periodically. So let's talk about what the uh, consumer can do. Let's say that um, I have a camera that is uh, a few years old and I just bought a new digital camera. What do I do next? I put it on my computer and then is that it? Do, do I just, I could just forget about it, can I? No, this is a problem. And again, it's problems that consumers face is what everybody is facing. It doesn't matter if you're Library of Congress, actually, or, or if you're ABC or CNN. The problem is, is that once anything becomes a digital file, you have to split your head into thinking about preserving two things. One is the content, which is that actual file, say it's your home movie of your son's graduation from high school. It's on my mind because my son will be graduating from high school soon. So you have your son's high school graduation in that digital video file, and you're storing that file on something. And so usually it can be on your computer, it can be on a hard drive, um, you might put it on a DVD, you put it onto some kind of a physical carrier, or even if it's on your computer, it's still a carrier of some sort. So you have to think about preserving two things. One is the content, which is that, that file, and the second is, what is that file living on? You have to preserve that carrier that the file is on. So the problem, let's talk about the first one. So you've copied this file off onto your computer. Now your computer can crash. Okay, so now you've lost that content. You've lost the file format forever. And so you should, what you should do definitely is once you've copied it off, but not just copied it off, be mindful of what format you are copying it into. Because if you are saving that as proprietary format, like a Windows media file or um, even QuickTime, the problem is you hopefully want to save that video of your son's high school graduation of uh, an event you're thinking about. Perhaps your great, 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 great grandkids want to be able to watch this file in 80 years. So if you have saved this in a proprietary format and that file, and you haven't touched that file format since then, they most likely will not be able to access that file format in 80 years. Well, let's talk about that for a moment then. How much should the average consumer know about file formats? Well, what um, 
I would recommend, actually there are like five steps that I can recommend, but the first one is you get that content off the tape and you save it in the, the native file format that is off of that tape, which should be just in a standard like digital video or a DV file format. And you archive that original native DV format before anything has happened to it, before it's been converted over into any system by whatever editing system or transfer system you're using. Just save that native format. So just drag, it, drag it right off the camera and then put it somewhere off the computer. Yeah, first at first put it on your computer and then you'll be dealing with a backup, but that's a whole other separate issue then okay. because then you have to migrate the, the media forward as well, not just the file format. Okay. But just talking about the file format, just save that native DV file format somewhere and then you can put it through and process it and you know use it just for like access purposes and do what you want with it, but save that native one because thinking about then as file formats themselves become obsolete or there are new versions that are introduced, think about which version of QuickTime we're in now, you know, and just think about what's going to happen in 80 years. Will QuickTime even be around in 80 years? Will it even be playable? So the idea is as long as you have it in as open or as non-proprietary format as possible, it is easier to migrate that file format forward if it's in its original native or open file format. By proprietary, you mean um, something that, uh, like it's, a, it's affiliated with a particular product. Yes, exactly. Or software manufacturer. And so again, mm -hmm. if you just take the file, you shot a movie of your son's graduation, and you, you, you take that file and just put it on your computer, and that's sacred. You don't touch it. You don't do anything with it. That's correct. So then that also then gets into the um, notion of file management. You have to know then, okay, you have this one folder where those are the original files that are saved in a directory structure or a folder. And then again, you can do whatever you want with the access files that you're creating. And by access, you mean copies of the original files, copies you can modify and add music to and edit and so on, correct? That's the access copy. You never modify the originals. That is absolutely correct. Uh, in fact, what you should do is when you copy off that original file um, off your camera or whatever it, it is on originally, you should just save that original as it is. Don't touch it. Make a copy of it, of course, if you want to do the editing, as you mentioned, and adding music and or other text, anything else you want to do with it. But just save that original copy. Don't do anything to it. Copy it. Put away the original. Of course, what this means then is that you will be then saving two versions of that original file. And so you need to be clear as you're doing all of your digital preservation work, what are the original files that came out of the camera or were transferred, and then which are the ones that are edited so there's no confusion in the future. But what this also means is that you need to track that information in, somehow you have to catalog it. You need to know that, okay, in this folder of all of the original DV files that you've created, which one is of your son's high school graduation and which one is perhaps of a family reunion or a shooting footage of your town. What do you suggest for people who are too busy to actually sit down and make descriptive notes about everything that's on the video? What's the least that they should do with their files? The very least, and they can do this, I mean you don't need a fancy system to do this, at the very least when you've created it or you've um, pulled the file off the tape, even like in an Excel spreadsheet or any other, you know, simple software that you might be using on your own computer. Um, you just note what the file name is, and people should not be calling their videos or leaving it to be called whatever it came off the camera in, which probably would just be like a date or some just numeric number. It should be meaningful in some way and unique. 
you would rename it high school graduation. Something, yeah. It could have the date in it. It could be, you know, you know, Sam High School graduation okay. kind of thing. Um, it doesn't have. It should not be long, and it should be too descriptive. But it has to be something that is unique and will not be confused with another file. Now, along with that, and perhaps I should backtrack. Is like, why are you even creating this information? You're not creating it for yourself. You're creating it for your great 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 grandkids in 80 years to be able to access this information and find that content, which can be kind of daunting, but unfortunately it is something that you have to consider. Because, the, you know, when we think about what can we access now from our great-great-great-great-grandparents in the past, you know, it's diaries, it's photographs, it's, it's letters from them, which are really easy just to find in the attic and to look at. But when we're thinking about the content we're creating now and thinking going forward into the future of who will want to access what we're creating today, similar to what our great-great-great-grandparents created, you have to, it, it requires a lot more thought and planning um, and tracking information for those people in the future so they'll know what kinds of files are they working with. And in fact, and I know this again sounds very daunting to people, but you know, what I say is like, you know, instead of an oral tradition, we have to have in our families a digital preservation tradition. You're thinking about who is going to be accessing this in the future, which means you have to plan for it now. It's multi-generational. What is going to happen, unfortunately, and your great-great-great-great-grandkids will hate you for this, because as you can imagine, with every generation of a family, they're passing on their digital files to the next generation. So, of course, this will aggregate. It will grow. And so our poor great-great-great-grandkids, you know, in the future, they're going to have to deal with this massive amount of content that they will feel responsible for then migrating forward to then the next generations going forward. It is a lot of work, but there is just no way around it if you want to do this yourself and have your family history, you know, carried forward to your kids, grandkids, great-grandkids going on into 200 years from now. For people who aren't familiar with the idea of migrating files forward, can you talk about that, what that means? Well, let's say that you have shot something and you have saved it in a proprietary format. Again, it's, it's a format that isn't an open DB format. What will end in 20 years, whatever is a version of that file format now, might not be able to play retrospectively the file format that you created that file in today. This is a common issue with proprietary file formats that change versions. You know, they can only be backwards, readable, compatible, usually to some generations backwards in the file format. So why, again, this is managed preservation is where you have to then think, okay, and you have to be mindful of this, that when all of your content that you have created could be in this proprietary file format, which is no longer readable, so then you need to migrate it forward, and you need to open it up and save it then in the new version of that file format, or migrate it to a different file format, perhaps, that is more stable. So the video of your son's graduation, however you shot it, and with whatever camera and whatever file format it's in when you saved it, in the year 2020, that might be obsolete. That's correct. And you won't be able to run that. Okay. You won't be able to play the file. If people start making archives now, this year, start archiving their things, mm -hmm. um, how often should they check them and save them in the new, better, workable file format? Well, th this is again why, unfortunately, and again, this is, this is what everybody, it doesn't matter if you're a large corporation or you're an individual shooting content, you have to be mindful of. Within the data that you should be capturing, the cataloging information, 
there's a, a minimal set of preservation data that you need to capture. Again, you're thinking not for yourself, you're thinking about, you know, years in the future. So some of that data that you should capture includes the original file format that you captured that in and what operating system you were able to play it in. Was it, you know, Mac OS 10 version 9 or, or whatever it is? Because then what will happen is, let's say like every five years, somebody can check that spreadsheet. Somebody in your family can check that spreadsheet and say, uh-oh, we have all of this content here that's in this format that is now becoming obsolete, we should probably take all those files and migrate them to then the next uh, generation or the next version. So where would you put that information, Linda? If somebody is going to take the time to write a note, <laughs> I, I think it's a good example of your son's graduation. So if you're going to save that, you talked about organizing the files. So let's say you put all the, your video files into a folder called videos. When it comes time to move them somewhere else to a new drive, to a computer that you upgraded. When it comes time to uh, migrate them into a new format, you want to type up a, a document that says, oh, I, I shot this on such and such a camera, and it's set on... What's the basic information that someone should include? The very basic preservation data that I would recommend is, well, not only just like the content, like what's on the, in the file, but the date when it was captured, when it was shot, the camera model that was used, um, also including this is assuming that people are working with digital file formats or digital video cameras. Now, of course, if you have VHS tapes, which you've now transferred into digital files, you want to note that as well, that originally it was on VHS, which you then transferred to DV, for example. You would want to track the file format and the version and what your operating system and that version is when you capture that file. So Windows XP or, or Macintosh version 10 or something. Yes. Uh -huh. And I should add that, given your background, that you've done quite extensive work with added information or metadata and that you've, you've published a book about metadata for, for digital video. So, so you can go to the far extreme and have institutional level information in a properly formatted way. So we're talking about two different extremes here. One is the, the ultimate standard of metadata for digital files and at the far end I'm thinking of someone who's too busy to do any of that and just wants to hand off a drive with videos to their grandkids and mm -hmm. doesn't really want to be bothered taking time to put information so there there's some basic information there there's ideal information and there's basic information does that sound right yes right and and what I just listed those basic files that the, that's basic information that everybody should capture you know for the sake of your grandkids because otherwise the other extreme is for example the SEMTI, the Society of Motion Picture Television Engineers their technical metadata dictionary has over 2,000 metadata fields oh my god <laughs> yeah, so, and they're all very useful but I mean definitely it's not what a consumer would want to use <laughs> The video editing programs that come with uh, most cameras, do they have places in there to add metadata or add additional information to the video? Yes, uh, some of them can, and so you should look at whatever software that you happen to be using. There are those also that can extract some of the technical data off of the file itself. For example, it can tell you then what is the file format and what the version is, sometimes even the camera model and the date when it was shot. That's possible as well. 
and people can look on the internet and they can find actually some free sources where they would be able to extract that information. However, there's some information that they might want to add themselves, for example, their operating system and the version of their operating system and also the content, of course. So you take the video off of the camera and if you have the software to process video or even look at the video, there may be this menu option to add information and any information that you add, like what you just said about the camera or the date it was shot or uh, the, the subjects in the video, that gets carried along with the video. The video itself is a container for that information, correct? Yes, exactly. It's included within the file itself, but then it's also handy to have it then in a even a simple kind of database where you can immediately do a search for, okay, find all of this one specific file format and when it was created and what version it was. So if you can, create a database with this information, or, or a spreadsheet, which is a kind of a simplified database. Mm-hmm, that's right. Okay, good. So we talked about keeping the format once the video comes off the camera. You put it on your computer, and let's say in five years I just move my files over, and I've got my, my video in the one place, I just move it into the next computer. Is that a good practice? This gets into the second item that people need to think about. So we've talked about the content, the file format, and how to just get the files off, as you mentioned. But then the second thing is those files are stored on something. And as everybody who ever works in computers knows, then computers can crash, they can fail, files can get lost. So it's recommended that you have a backup. And in fact, not just one copy stored somewhere else, but ideally even two just in case there's a catastrophic failure. Um, now the problem is then that those files are being stored on something. So it's recommended definitely do not store everything that you have just on your computer because if that computer crashes and fails, you've lost everything. You can store them onto other media, you know, off of your computer as well, especially because if you're creating digital videos, those can tend to aggregate into a pretty large file storage, so you probably don't want them all on your computer anyway. So you can save them on, I mean, some people would say save them on DVDs. You can save them on even Blu-ray. Blu-ray has a, a writable format as well. You can save them on external hard drives. And those external hard drives can be small, and they can even be larger ones. You can get into the terabytes worth of storage and using what's called RAID storage, so it's kind of redundant in making backup copies within the system itself. You can also use cloud storage like Amazon S3. But the problem is each of these examples for storage that I just mentioned, they all have problems and you cannot expect them to be um, usable in the future. So along with thinking about migrating the actual video files, the content themselves, you have to think about migrating the physical carriers that those digital objects live on. Because let's say that you think, okay, I've saved everything onto a gold DVD arc and the manufacturer says that those will last 200 years. And so you think, okay, great, I can put them up in the attic. And then in 200 years, I don't have to worry about it. Then in 200 years, whoever is alive then can just, as anybody would find now, maybe a letter from 200 years ago, they can actually play that DVD and they'll find the files. But the problem with that is if you think that in 200 years, somebody's going to find that DVD, it's the same as if they found a rock, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> because what happens is that in 200 years, sure, the gold, the metal in that gold DVD might still be around, but the dye that is used to burn the, um, 
that when you burn something onto a DVD, a dye changes uh, color, and if the and that what is what allows the laser then to be able to read the information stored on the DVD. The dye will not last 200 years, and so the DVD will not be readable just because of that. And then second, there probably won't even be DVD players around in 200 years. So the format itself has become obsolete. So as if life isn't hard enough, and people don't have, we all don't have enough to worry about with just our daily expenses, you're saying, if I could paraphrase you, you're saying that it's good practice to invest in a couple of different places to store your videos. Oh, and it's worse than that, <laughs> because, because again, those, those whatever you're making those backup copies on, that won't last forever either. So you have to migrate the content on those physical carriers forward as well. So as I mentioned, that DVD, the or even the Blu-ray, those won't last forever. You store things on external hard drives. Well, it is recommended that you don't just then leave the hard drive and think it'll be okay you know, for years and years and years, like within a three to five year period, you need to then take the files off that hard drive and copy them onto a new hard drive. Because the external hard drives have spinning parts and they have lubricants that can all deteriorate or, or evaporate. And so therefore then because of the high, you know, the failure rate that is possible with external hard drives, that is why then you need to just make new copies, like say every five years roughly. So as cool as digital is, it's saddling us all with a whole bunch of unexpected problems that we have to deal with if we want to preserve our stuff. Unfortunately, that's true. Yeah. Everybody thinks, oh, digital is so easy. We can just make copies and, oh, digital storage is becoming cheaper and cheaper. But the problem with digital preservation is the managed part of it. You have to keep resuscitating these files. It's a constant act of resuscitation. And I guess for us older folks, we probably don't want to deal with it, but younger people, that has to become part of their lives, is managing their digital possessions. That's right. Now, you mentioned in one of your writings, the tape life. You, you quoted uh, the lifespan of tape. Mm -hmm. And I think the figure you put out was anywhere from 30 to 45 years. And that is for the uh, professional-grade tapes. So actually, the um, I mean, it's really, it is just one of these... I don't know, oxymorons or whatever the term is, is where, you know, the more recent the format, the shorter the life expectancy. <laughs> you know, and so people these days, they're using the, you know, for your consumer videos, you're using the small, you know, DV tapes, DV cam, mini DV, mm -hmm. those. Mm -hmm. And those tend to be metal evaporated tapes, which means there's no binder, which means that it won't last as long. It's more, it's a more fragile tape. And the more you play it, then the more chance then of that, the information actually um, being lost. You know, you'll start seeing more dropouts on the tape. And so in the archival community, people tend to think that metal evaporated tapes or those smaller consumer DV tapes have a life expectancy more like five years. And by life expectancy, it means that it doesn't mean that the tape is not playable in five years. It just means that you start seeing loss of information. Which you can't get back. Exactly. Once it's gone, it's gone. So there's this uh, sense of urgency for archiving our stuff now. And I'm, I'm thinking of um, VHS tapes as well, that they were the format right before DVDs, and there are many, many people who still have boxes and boxes of old VHS tapes that they'll get around to digitizing someday. But you're saying that they won't last more than a couple decades. If you want to preserve it, you have to digitize it soon. And the couple of decades, that's dependent on where it was stored. So, for example, if you live in the south where it's very humid and you put those tapes up in the attic under no environmental control, I would give them five years, five to ten years. 
storage is really key. Until somebody does get to, a, to the point of digitizing their VHS tapes, how do you suggest that they store it? What's the best way for now? Preferably in some kind of climate-controlled environment where humidity is the primary uh, factor that impacts any organic material, video, film, audio tape as well. Basically, it's supposed to be kept cold and dry. So if they can even get it down into somewhere where it's stored in the 60s and the relative humidity is more like 35 to 40, 45 percent, that would help extend its life. I'm thinking of in our basement, putting it in a room with a dehumidifier. That's better than putting it up in the attic where it gets all the heat. Okay, (laughs) fair enough. (laughs) And speaking of obsolescence, the players have gone obsolete. So Mm -hmm. the chances of being able to digitize the VHS tape, they get slimmer every day, right? Because players are off the market. There are converters. Do do you want to talk about that? Do you know anything about consumer-level VHS to digital converters? Well, one of the most common and least expensive things that someone could do is if they still have a VHS player at home, a VCR, and if they have their digital camera, they can run um, the VHS, a cable from their VCR through their digital camera and their digital camera into their computer. And so that's like the cheapest way of digitizing that you can do at home. Otherwise, you can buy other converters, but that's probably the most common technique that people are using today. Okay, that sounds great. And then, of course, once you get it on your camera, you go through the whole process of saving the, uh, saving the file formats. Right. Mm-hmm. How about DVDs as a preservation medium? Now, you've already said that you know, that's, that's one possible place, uh, a drive, a computer, storing it in the cloud as part of an online service. What about if someone only has a DVD? They burn the DVD, or maybe it was given to them by a family member. You know, this is a video of your mother that I saved for you. What can they do with that DVD, or or how long will that DVD last? Is there is there a good way to get the movie off of the DVD and onto your computer so you can go through the migration and curation process? Right. Yes, they should definitely get the the file off the DVD. You know, don't throw away the DVD, but get it off there because DVDs. Um, especially depending on the actual kind of DVD that was used, the quality of the metal and the dye and how it was stored, you know, it has a short life expectancy. So get the file off. That's pretty much the case with anything, actually. Like, you, once you get into the digital realm, you're no longer preserving media, you're preserving the files. It's a file-based preservation method. So anyway, so that's why get it off the, t- the DVD um, or any tapes, anything that you have. So once you get it off the DVD, there is a chance that it might have been uh, converted or it's saved into a .vob file, which is common for when you burn videos to DVD. So then what they need to do is convert that .vob file into a more usable format, into a DV format or MPEG-4. And you can again, you can go online and you can use free media file format uh, transcoders. Uh, like VLC, for example, is a free one. It's an open source tool on the internet that people can just go to and they can convert their files through this free software. So if I put a DVD into my computer and it doesn't play right away, if I'm just looking at the disc on the computer, I can open it up mm-hmm. and I'll see the different folders in there and I can picture the VOB folders. I just drag those onto my computer. That's right. And then that'll give me the stuff to work with, the movies to work with, and then I need to just look for these conversion programs that you talked about. That's right, and convert the VOB file to uh, whatever format you've decided to use as your primary preservation format. 
Okay. And, and of course, we're not advocating violating any copyrights and trying to do this with any commercial products. And, and the commercial-made DVD is probably has protections on it as well, so that information is locked. Is that correct? That's right. And so, so this is only assuming that people have saved their home movies or, or whatever, their own personal video files on a DVD-R. They burned it onto a DVD-R. Well, Linda, this is a lot of great information. Is there anything that you'd like to add for just general consumers to, to help archive and preserve and pass along their videos? Just to reiterate that, again, you're not doing this for yourself. You're doing it for the future generations who will want to see their family's history going back in generations. So even though it sounds like it's a lot of work, which it, it is, but, you know, it has to be done. There's just no way around it if you want to do it yourself. And it's probably a lot of initial work, but after a while, once you get caught up and once you have all of your videos organized, it's probably just a simple routine, right? To add some information every time you take a video off a camera and store it in a central place, you know, with the other videos and just keep an eye on it and shepherd it along. Mm -hmm. That's right. Just make sure you keep all as many backups as you can and you keep migrating both the file formats and your backup media as often as you can according to a schedule. Just mark it in your calendar and say, oh, today is backup day. I guess that's it, Linda. Thank you very much for your time and for all the great information. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm glad to help. This has been a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information about digital preservation, please visit digitalpreservation.gov.